Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. The following is a dead bug podcast. If you're light of balls or weak of heart, this ain't the place for you. Easter, a Christian festival and cultural holiday commemorating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But unfortunately, not everything rises from the dead at Easter. And the Reaper, well, he don't pay no much never mind to the Easter Bunny. Such is the case of number seven on our list, the Gideon murders. New York City. I guess there's two types of people in its inhabitants. There are the hustlers, and there are those who are mocked, waiting to be hustled. Veronica Gedeon, I guess it's safe to say, would fall on the side of the hustlers. Work in the city of New York, just like she worked that sweet little ass of hers. I guess today the modern day equivalent would be the glamour model. If a magazine's pages weren't stuck together, chances are Veronica weren't in it, with her specialty being on the cover of sleazy detective novels. You know, jerk off Max. And she'd been busted more than once for doing porn. Real cock tease. Leggy, blonde, you know the score. Her films were real arty stuff. Still cock tease. It was Easter Sunday, and by all accounts, the streets of New York were pretty quiet. For New York. It was 1.30 in the afternoon that Veronica's father, Joseph, a laborer and carpet fitter, first-generation immigrant from Hungary, was paying his daughter a surprise visit on Easter. Estranged from his wife, he still tried to keep a close relationship with his two daughters. His wife ran a rooming house and rented out rooms to her two daughters, among others. By his own account, the door to his daughter's apartment was open. He walked in, and she was laying naked on the bed. She was cut up badly, and it was clear that she was dead. When he looked down, he saw two legs sticking out from under the bed. He looked under that bed and his wife was there. She'd been stabbed as well, and partially naked. Going into the next room, one of the lodgers was a deaf English bartender, 20-year-old Frank Burns, and he was naked and stabbed to death on the bed as well. Now I'm not being funny here, but deaf and a bartender? Isn't your primary role in the job to listen to people? Okay, where was I? When cops were called to the apartment, the first thing they established that all three victims looked like they met their maker from an ice pick. Her mother must have dropped by for a visit 
and got a free lobotomy for her efforts. Then the deaf bartender, whom I'm guessing never heard it coming. Although Veronica was engaged, by a neighbor's account, she was out that night drinking with another man. She returned about 3 a.m., making out with the guy in the front doorstep before returning to her apartment very drunk. The neighbor said she'd also heard banging and other noises coming from the apartment. But by all accounts, Veronica, or Ronnie, as she was known to friends, liked it rough. Nice. Cops immediately had Veronica's father in their sights. Cold, detached, just off the banana boat, he fit the bill. But when the story hit the papers, most of the public disagreed. They figured that it was her love life that got her in trouble. When they went through her diary, it was clear that she was a slut. She went too picky with who she bedded. And the young woman's autopsy showed if she hadn't died from the stab wounds, she most likely would have bought it from syphilis. When they checked the apartment, nothing seemed out of order, except for they found a sculpture carved out of soap, a snake with big tits. And when they ran a check on that soapy sculpture, they found the fingerprint of who made it. And that fingerprint belonged to one Robert Irwin, a young artist and sculptor who many believed was as brilliant as he was insane. The son of a shamed Baptist minister, he'd once cut off his own nutsack with a razor blade, whose clients included Edgar Hoover of the FBI and the President of the United States, who he both made sculptures of. But he was also a regular visitor to the Bellevue Mental Hospital. And by coincidence, he'd been a lodger of Veronica's mother in the building next door to Veronica's, but he was evicted when he became obsessed with Veronica's sister. Now, although you can't see what I'm seeing, trust me, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'll take Veronica still, even with the syphilis. Now, investigators believing that they had their man started searching the city and the surrounding states. It was six weeks later they got a call from a hotel manager in Cleveland who said he'd hired a bellboy who fit Irwin's description. But before the cops showed up, Irwin got wise to it and did a runner. But it was two weeks later when a paper ran a story offering a reward for information on who killed the pinup and sometimes porn actress when Irwin turned himself in for a reward, giving them an exclusive story before the cops put it behind bars. Good thinking. Apparently, he'd gone to the fifth floor apartment looking for Ethel, Veronica's hot sister, because he had loved her, and he was enraged when he found out she was engaged. But once she wasn't there, he got even angrier, because he'd wanted to cut off her head and make a death mask out of it. Original thinking, I like it. And while he waited for Ethel to return to the apartment, the mother came home, so he stuck her with the ice pick. And when the mother called out his name, not knowing that the bartender was deaf, he killed him too to make sure there were no witnesses. And finally, Veronica, if he loved her sister so much, why'd he spend so much time goofing on Veronica's ass? And better still, why'd he leave everyone naked, including the deaf bartender? But he wouldn't say. But one thing was for sure, he was nuttier than a shithouse hen, and he would spend the rest of his life in a mental institution, making sculptures out of mashed potatoes. And the case would forever change how the criminally insane were treated by the legal system. Welcome to another episode of Dead Bugs Deadly 7. A series where I let you ponder seven grotesque happenings. <laughs> On this episode, seven deadly Easters. 
with number six being the events surrounding Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in England. Post-war London was a party town, and 14-year-old Ruth Ellis, well, she was a party girl. So she left her home in the suburbs and hit the streets of Slees Avenue, men in the strip joints and gentlemen clubs. There were plenty of ways for a girl who had Ruth's visible charms to make some scratch, and the flirty 14-year-old knew she had a natural-born gift, and she wasn't shy about it. Club host, nude modeling, prostitution, she had a finger in them all. And by all accounts, they had their fingers in her as well. But I guess with two kids from different fathers before she was 20, she didn't have a reputation to protect. But everybody has an Achilles heel. Everybody. And Ruth's was race car drivers. And to be more specific, the smell of burning rubber. And more precisely, the smell of burning flesh got her off. It was a spare ticket from a friend for Le Mans 1955, where she witnessed motor racing's worst disaster. And it made her realize her true vocation in the bedroom, because it was amongst that carnage where she met Silver Spoon rich kid racer David Blakely. And by all accounts, she fucked him right then and there, after only knowing him for 10 minutes. Amongst the suffering and carnage, but the relationship would be just as combustible as the fuel in his car. Because although him and Ruth liked the fuck, it wasn't always with each other. Each with a string of lovers, their fights were legendary. With Blakely liking administrating the rough stuff on Ruth. But when she was six months pregnant with his child, and he punched her in the stomach, and she miscarried, I guess that was a turning point for Ruth. And while she was still grieving, and he didn't come back for Easter dinner, now she went out looking for him. When he came out of the bar, and she called his name and he ignored her, she shot at him. And yeah, sure, he tried to run, but you can't run from the abyss. And she filled him full of lead, with one in the mouth as he begged like a bitch. And when it went in front of a judge, he didn't buy her victim story either. And despite public outrage, she was sentenced to death. And Ruth Ellis's last date was with the hangman. Number five on my list is the Tulsa takedown. When Carl Englund was brutally shot down in front of his kids by a black man. Yeah, sure, it was sad. That's life in the big city. It happens. And I guess, let's just let bygones be bygones and move on from it, right? Wrong. The killer, a black man, only getting six years. Jake England reckoned he had a score to settle on account of his dad. And maybe he was right. But why he decided to settle that score with a whole race of people instead of the perpetrator is anyone's guess. But perhaps it was the same motivation that made him take pictures of his best friend, a dude, and post them on Facebook. It was on Good Friday, around 1 a.m., that the un-dynamic duel went out looking for a little payback. But it wasn't the first time that hillbillies had taken to the streets of Tulsa to collect on a debt. It was on Memorial Day, 1921, when a 19-year-old black shoeshine boy figured he'd try his luck with a pretty 17-year-old blonde when all hell broke loose. When the teen reported the assault to a passing police officer, the shoeshine boy was promptly arrested, even though he swore he'd only whistled at the girl and shared a few kind words. Either way, he was taken to jail, but then there were rumors that there was a lynch mob forming. Hearing these rumors, the black contingency formed their own mob, and they were armed, and they headed down to the jailhouse. 
Witnesses, both black and white, say that an elderly white man tried to take a weapon from one of the black mob, and he was shot dead for his trouble. And from there, it was a free-for-all, with both sides firing at each other point-blank. You couldn't miss. But I guess by the ratio of the body count, some did. From that initial standoff, there were 39 dead, 26 black, and 13 white. It was then that the white mob moved into what was known as Black Wall Street, where successful black businesses had been started and they even had their own bank. But not for long, because the white mob burned it to the ground. And although the National Guard was called in, not quick enough. But with 150 to 200 blacks dead and 50 whites, with an estimated 1.5 million in damages and over 800 people put in a hospital. I guess it don't matter at this point. To this day, it's still unclear what really happened with the shoeshine boy claiming he had assaulted the girl. He'd only tripped and grabbed her arm. But with more than one lynching's origin starting with a black boy messing with a white girl, he can be forgiven for coming up with such a colorful tale. But I'm guessing none of that was on the mind of Jake England and his best friend as they hit the streets of Tulsa a hundred years later. Armed with a shotgun and a whole lot of hatred. Going from street to street, picking off those they felt had ill them like possums in a possum patch. Leaving three random pedestrians dead and five seriously injured, all of them black, putting Tulsa back on the map. And at least for Easter weekend, it wasn't even safe to have a tan. With Jake England and Alvin Watts getting life for hate crimes. Number four on my list of Easter goodies, Daniel Bartlam, Hammer Time. Experts are still trying to put the pieces together of what caused a 14-year-old to wake up eat his Easter chocolate, and spend a loving day with his mother. Then, walk into a room that night while she slept, and brutally smash her face to a pulp with a hammer. And then, while she was still alive, crying, begging, asking why, feeling around for her glasses, he poured gasoline over her and set her on fire. While she wept, a crime that the judge described as senseless and grotesque. Daniel Bartlam were locked up indefinitely. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. 
you're not just some reckless rookie yoloing your portfolio ready to risk it all on some shiny new coin you're on robin hood now trading etfs tracking the smp working that dca you're breaking free from bots bankers and all that you're doing it all and on your terms because no one runs your money like you Stocks and ETFs offered by Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SAPC. Crypto offered by Robinhood Crypto LLC. All investing involves risk. Close family members say that they still love Daniel, but hope that one day he'll be able to fill in the missing pieces and tell them what really happened in the house that night. And number three on my Easter list, the bath time murder. New York City. 1936. And I guess you could say that it were a time of the haves and the have-nots. And Nancy Evans Titterton were definitely one of the haves. And if one were to lyrically wax, it's safe to say that the 32-year-old was riding a gravy train with biscuit wheels. Married to a big broadcast and publishing executive, I suppose her only problem with money would be what else she could spend it on. But I guess like all these well-off or kept women, I suppose they get bored. So Nancy decided to write her first novel. And naturally, because her husband was head of a publishing firm, well, he were gonna publish it. Which doesn't mean that she weren't talented, cause I'm sure she were real talented. It was Good Friday, and Nancy, she was staying in because she was having some furniture delivered. So she decided to do a little writing on a novel. But I guess she was having writer's block, so she had a couple of martinis. The couple were having their apartment renovated. They just moved from Al's kitchen, where her husband had enjoyed living, because he liked to be close to the common man. But Nancy hated it, because she felt it was below their status. And besides, she didn't feel too safe near the poor people. Especially now with them living with the creme de la creme of society, including the Rockefellers who were one of the richest families in the world. Her husband said that he'd phoned Nancy several times that day, and the last time he spoke to her were about 10 a.m. After that, she didn't answer the phone. But it was when the delivery stiffs from the furniture and reupholstery joint were returning her couch, and they saw the apartment's front door open. They sensed something were wrong and entered. Looking around the apartment, they could see clothes strewn all over the floor, and an unmade bed. I could hear the shower running when they entered the bathroom. There, laying in the bathtub, was Nancy Evans Titterton. The 34-year-old were completely naked and tied up with her pajama top, with her stockings still around their ankles. Forensics figure that she'd been fucked in every hole that God had given her. And a few, she probably didn't know that she had. But by the bruising on her knuckles, she put up a pretty good fight. When detectives moved the body, there was a cord under it that looked like it had been cut and had been used to tie up Mrs. Titterton, which meant the crime were premeditated. And although forensics couldn't find any fingerprints, they did find blood on the bed through anal tearing and enough jizz in her to make a jizz milkshake. Although I don't know why you'd want to do that. But it was through poking around a little deeper 
that the forensic eggheads found something even more bizarre. A horsehair was in the bed. It was only afterwards when Mr. Titterton had confirmed that neither he nor his wife had ever shared their bed with a horse. The detectives knew they had their first clue and further poking around uncovered that there were green paint on the bed sheets due to the building were being repainted. But when they chased up on the leads, they discovered as it were Good Friday, out of the three painters, two were off duty and only one were working and he were a cripple. So I guess he could paint, but he couldn't fuck. Cleared by genetic misfortune, I guess you could say. A freak of nature, another may lament. But detectives got their first breakthrough when they discovered that the horsehair didn't come directly from the horse, but were used to restuff couches. Possibly their couch, and the cord they found in the bath, that were also from a furniture store. Now detectives had established the murder was committed before noon. The killer liked to spray jizz, and there were a horse hair in the bed. The same horse hair that were in the couch, that had been restuffed, but yet to be delivered. Now the first thing on the detective's list was to visit the reupholstering shop and talk to the bozos who stuffed and delivered the couch. When they spoke to Theo Kruger, he said that he'd been in the shop all morning, running the place. An alibi tighter than the Velcro strap on a spoon of a stroke victim eating baby food. When they asked him where Johnny Fiorenzo was, Theo told him that Johnny had taken the morning off because he was seeing his parole officer, but that he came in in the afternoon when it was time to deliver the sofa. But detectives knew that that was a filthy Dago lie because parole officers don't work on Easter holidays. And when they looked up their friendly neighborhood delivery, they go, well, they found out that he had a rap sheet longer than a mongoloid's tongue. And when they brought Johnny Boy in for questioning, yeah, sure, at first he denied it. Then after a little pressing, about five hours later, he told the G-Man the whole story. He said he'd been infatuated by the leggy scribbler and that when he'd been over to pick up her old couch, he'd seen her in her negligee and she'd been drinking, showing a little leg, being a little flirty, and he wanted some. She made him harder than a cat's scratching post. So before he burst, he went over that morning to show Mrs. Titterton his appreciation of her female form. And at first she seemed reciprocal, but then started squealing. So he strangled the dame, then dumped her in the bath cause she were covered with his jizz. But in the end, the jury didn't care about Johnny's scratching post bona or the fact that this rich bitch were flirting with him. Because they gave Johnny the Dago the electric chair, and he ended up being just another tale from the abyss. And number two on my Easter goodies list, the Easter Massacre. It was the most horrible sight that I'd ever seen. Eleven bodies. I believe that it was an egghead philosopher who once said, the measurement of what you are is what you have left behind. And if that's the case, then James Rupert weren't much of a man. At just under five foot six, college dropout, no job, still living with his mother, and by all accounts, very sensitive, and would start crying even at a sad movie. <laughs> 
But if you think about it, if he was born 30 years later, he could be one of those social justice warriors. Because the few friends that he had at the bar in Hamilton, Ohio, were either cripples, gays, single mothers, or other set-upon minorities, if you get my drift, without me offending any of you more sensitive types. But it was when his mother told him a week before Easter, and subsequently his 41st birthday, that she were kicking his ass out of her house. Because if he could afford to buy a beer a night in the dive that he frequented, then he could afford to pay rent. So I guess this got the cogs in James's head turning. So he went out with his welfare check and he bought himself three guns, including a 357 Magnum. Went for a few drinks at his favorite bar, then went home to bed. In the morning, his successful younger brother brought over his wife and eight kids to see their grandmother and to do an Easter hunt on the front yard. Fucking show off. Then about 4.30 in the afternoon, James finally woke his welfare ass up. Then he walked downstairs, made himself a cup of coffee, then he shot everybody. Okay, I think you got the idea. We were looking up at the stars And talking about how we like to talk in conversations How beautiful I thought you are James Rupert killed 11 people that Easter afternoon, with eight of those being children. He killed three adults first, then he shot each of the children three times. Most of the children had been playing in the living room. He said he shot the children three times to make sure that they were dead. What a sweet guy. The only sign of a struggle was someone had knocked over a waste paper bin. The house still stands, and now Bazali is a tourist attraction. After killing his brother's entire family, including his mother, he phoned the police and sat outside on the porch and waited for them. And when they arrived, they were eating a chocolate Easter egg. And the bitter little man, who bore more than a striking resemblance to Woody Allen, pleaded not guilty by insanity defense, but the judge weren't buying the shit that the little man was selling. Well, I guess he kinda wasn't buying it, because James Rupert was found guilty of two cases of aggravated murder, but not guilty of the other nine counts by reason of insanity, and he'll be eligible for parole consideration in 2025, when he's 90. And number one on my Easter list is Steve Stevens, the Facebook killer. Can true evil ever be measured? And if so, what do you measure it by? And in comparison to what? Life is something that we have until it's taken away. And rarely do we have that choice to choose the moment when that end comes. 37-year-old African-American Steve Stevens he was a punk. Liked torturing animals, no game with the ladies, and on the verge of bankruptcy from gambling debts. And life weren't going the way he wanted it to go. And to make things worse, he just had a big breakup with his girlfriend. But I don't believe it was madness that started Stevens live streaming on Facebook on his mobile Easter 2017 and committing a heinous act. It was pure evil. 
finally somebody about to kill. I'm gonna kill this guy right here. Driving around the streets east of Sunday, he randomly seemed to pick the most vulnerable person he could find. And that was 74-year-old Robert Goodwin. Right. Can you do me a favor? Can you say Joy Lane? Can you say Joy Lane? Joy Lane? Yeah. She's the reason why um, this is about to happen to you. How old are you? Oh, man, look. As he shot and killed an elderly man. Our hearts go out to killed himself murdering a stranger before posting it to Facebook. I'm at the point where I snapped. And the man who murdered someone live on Facebook was on the run for the next three days. But I guess hunger waits for no man. And it was when Stevens pulled into a McDonald's in Pennsylvania, he was spotted by the counter staff who made him wait for his french fries. But Stevens cut on too late. He spotted the cops in the rearview mirror and sped away, caught a pounder in his hand. And before they could take him, he put a bullet in his head. Uh, looks like there's one guy down in the white car. Not even a fucking animal would kill another creature just for the sake of it. What Steve Stevens did that Easter Sunday was a senseless act of human cruelty. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com.